Well, as you can see, hopefully, does everyone get outlines? Let me just pause to make sure we, we got that. Every, maybe easiest, someone did not get an outline. If you didn't, you can raise your hand and uh, we'll make sure you get one of those. I don't see any hands up. So oh, we, do we have one or two down here this way? I think there were a few on the stack back by the information area. Okay, you got some. So just kind of keep your hand up. We'll make sure you, you get one of these. Uh, Maybe a little uh, easier to follow along because I'm not going to be taking a passage and walking through it verse by verse, which is what I usually do. Uh, but for this type of setting, I think that uh, this kind of message fits better. And so this is not going to be really what you'd consider a tight exposition, uh, but uh, rather uh, a looser exposition, for lack of a better term. And as you can see, the title that. Uh, that I have for this talk is Running with Endurance. It's actually uh, a message I've shared a few times in years past, and both Pastor John and Pastor Tanner had asked me to share it on this occasion, feeling like it would be a real fit for the uh, theme of the conference. So as we uh, dive into our time in the Word, I want to ask you a question. It's obviously a rhetorical question. That is, it's not one that you would answer out loud Two, but one that you would contemplate. The, the question is simply this. Here we are, early October 2014. Here's the question. Will you be walking with God this time next year? Will you be walking with God this time next year? Sadly enough, some of you who in your heart right now are saying yes to the question, will not be walking with God this time next year. How can I say that with certainty? Simply because it is something I have seen time and time and time again. I've spoken at, through the years, numerous camps and weekend retreats with high school students, college students, and it is always, always a tragedy to if, if it's a recurring type of thing, to come back the next year and begin asking around, hey, what about uh, Tom? What about Bob? What about Sally? What about Susie? Oh, they're doing terribly spiritually. They're, they're a shipwreck spiritually. In fact, I believe one of the rarest qualities in the body of Christ today is the character trait of endurance. Rare is the Christian who walks with God consistently year after year. Rare is the Christian who pursues God consistently year after year without getting sidetracked, without, without detour. So that's what I want to talk about in this study. Some of you know I basically grew up in Florida. We moved there when I was about nine and I finished Grade school, junior high, high school, even did some college work there. So when people say, where, where was home? I say Florida, even though I've been here over 30 years. But when I lived in Florida, I remember very clearly these two young men uh, who were in, in the same church I was involved in, in the same youth group. Uh, they made commitments to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I was a senior in high school at the time. Uh, they ended up becoming two of my best friends. Uh, they were uh, First Nations, Native American, whatever term you prefer. Uh, their names were Hunter uh, Eagle and Flint Eagle, obvious names of First Nations people or, or uh, Native American. Well, that was my senior year, and we became really good friends. I went away to Bible college, and uh, when I came back, 
I found out that neither were doing well spiritually at all when I came back the next summer after a year away. But that next summer, one Sunday night at church, and this little country church I was involved in would always have an altar call. Some of you know what that is. Maybe not all of you would be familiar with that. It's a time at the end of the service, sort of like if you've ever seen a Billy Graham crusade, people come forward, etc. Well, this church always had an altar call, and during the altar call at the end of the service, one of these young men came forward. And he came forward, and the pastor would always stand down in front during the invitation or altar call for anyone who wanted to talk. And then he would just sit down in the front row there, and privately, while the congregation continued to sing, would interact with whoever happened to be, be there, whoever happened to come forward. Well, one of these young men came forward, and the pastor was, was sitting there talking with him while the congregation was singing, and he was just weeping. You could hear it throughout the Throughout the, the uh, worship center, he was weeping as he told the pastor how he had wandered away from the Lord over the last year, how he was going to walk with God from that day forward. And in fact, this was very unusual. He asked the pastor if he could address the congregation to tell his decision, and the pastor granted. So everyone stopped singing, and he, he addressed the entire congregation and talked about how he had strayed from the Lord, wandered from the Lord, use whatever term you want. He, he had backslidden but that he was bound and determined that he was going to walk with the Lord from that day forward. He did that with so much sincerity, but right now today you would never know that he had made such a decision. In fact, I talked with a friend of mine when I was trying to keep track or find out where this guy had eventually ended up, and he told me that he left his wife and daughter, he ended up getting married, had a daughter, left his wife and daughter, and he moved to Canada to get involved with some weird religious group there. I think of another guy there in Florida that I discipled for a couple years when I was going to college, married three children, and after I moved here to Bozeman, I had to call him up to confront him because he had left his family and had moved in with another woman. There's no way in the two years I spent discipling him I would have ever dreamed he would do something like that. Not a chance in a million if you were to ask me. I could multiply stories like that over and over again. The heartbreak of my life, frankly, the heartbreak of ministry, when you've been in it a long time, is to see men and women who seem so sincere, and I don't mean seem as if implying they aren't, who are so sincere and who have walked with God for an extended period of time, and then they bag it. They just walk away. As I said, I could multiply stories like that. I think of this lady in our church in Florida. It was a couple that I remember as a teenager, I looked up to this couple because sadly, uh, my, my parents, and I don't mean any disrespect, but they had a horrible marriage. So when I was a Christian teenager, I was trying to look for couples that I could sort of look at as an example of a godly marriage since I didn't see one in my own home. And this was a couple I looked to. I thought, this is what I want someday. And she, she was married to a godly man. They were married for 15 years. And they specifically determined that uh, they, as they talked about and prayed about that, that the Lord would uh, have them have four children. They had four children and they wanted to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They had four children and one day she decided that she didn't want her husband, she didn't want her children, she didn't want her God. She wanted a career. So she went to work and she ran off with a married man from the place she worked at. 
She divorced her husband. He divorced his wife. And they got together. In some ways, I guess it shouldn't surprise us to see that happen so often because Jesus basically said it would happen. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Let's begin in Matthew chapter 13 this afternoon. The very first gospel record, the first book of the New Testament. And in Matthew 13, verse 3, Matthew records, Then Jesus spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, The birds of the air came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns. The thorns sprang up and choked them, but others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And then this statement by Jesus, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That was Jesus' way of saying, You know, if your mind just wandered, come back. If you started thinking about something, tune back in. You need to hear this. That's what Jesus is saying. If you have ears to hear, you need to hear this. This is important. This is crucial. This is critical. And Jesus interprets the parable down in verse 18. Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside, but he who received the seed on stony places. This is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. But he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Now, regardless of how you interpret this parable, and there are all sorts of suggestions, one thing is clear. Three out of four aren't good. Three out of four are unacceptable responses to the word of God. Three out of four aren't consistent in walking with God long-term and bearing fruit. And remember, the soil is the issue in this parable. The issue is the condition of the heart. The seed is the same in all four instances, but three out of four don't follow through. Now listen, if you are interested in walking with God long-term, and I would assume that most of you are in that category, and that's why you're here, So if you are interested in walking with God long term, this ought to strike a healthy fear in your heart. 75% don't. We see this illustrated in John chapter 6. We won't turn to it, but I'll just summarize the chapter. Jesus had been been doing quite a bit of healing. He walked on the water. He fed, we say, 5,000. That just counted the men, probably fifteen to 20,000. So at this point, Jesus had thousands following him, and then he began to unload the truth on the, the great multitude. And at, by the time you get to the end of the chapter, out of probably 20,000, that's not a, an exaggerated figure, out of 20,000, 12 remain. Only 12 remain, and even one of those wasn't genuine. Judas Iscariot 
followed for three and a half years and chucked the whole thing. Judas Iscariot looked so, so sincere, so real, so genuine that on the night before our Lord's death when he announced that someone would betray him, not a one of the other disciples said under his breath, oh, I bet it's Judas. No one suspected Judas. No one had a clue. In Luke 9.62, Jesus said, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So what is it that makes someone defect? What is it that causes someone to turn back? Again, use whatever term you want. What is it that causes someone to, to detour, to backslide, to fall away? Well, there's always the possibility that the person was never saved in the first place, like Judas. There will always be tares among the wheat. Jesus made that clear. There will always be those who aren't real. They're not genuine, but they go along with the crowd, and they look real, and it's just impossible to pick them out. Maybe the vast majority of spiritual defectors fall into this category, but what about genuine believers? You see, we can't dismiss every example, every case by saying, oh, he wasn't a Christian. She wasn't a Christian. As I said, that's probably the case in the majority, but it's not all. It is possible for a genuine believer to get sidetracked. It is possible for a genuine believer to do poorly spiritually. Otherwise, there wouldn't be all the warnings in the New Testament to believers about not defecting and about not turning back, about not getting sidetracked, about not embracing false teaching, about not getting involved in immorality. Just continue the list. There are multitudes of passages that warn believers not to do those things, which tells us that it's possible for genuine believers to do those things. So don't pass them all off on the idea that, well, they were just, they're not believers. What is it that causes genuine believers to, use your term, defect, fall away, get sidetracked. Well, the Apostle Paul speaks to that issue in two of the last letters he wrote, 1 and 2 Timothy. And we're going to work our way through 1 and 2 Timothy and pull pull out some of these warnings that Paul gives to Timothy. As I mentioned, these were two of the last books Paul wrote. He wrote 1 Timothy, then he wrote Titus, then he wrote 2 Timothy. And by the time he's writing 2 Timothy, Paul knows he won't be around much longer. He says that. He says at the end of 2 Timothy, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. He knows that his time is very short. He says, henceforth, you know, I have fought the good fight, I have done all that, and uh, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. Paul knows he won't be around much longer, so he's concerned that Timothy, his protege, his disciple, his son in the faith, would continue in the faith. He didn't want Timothy to become a spiritual washout. He didn't want him to defect. So in 1 and 2 Timothy, as Paul passes on the baton to Timothy, and that's the picture you need to have here when you read 1 and 2 Timothy. Paul has finished his race. It's sort of like a relay race. And Paul is passing the baton to Timothy, and he's saying, now, Timothy, you run with it. I've finished my race. You run. So in 1 and 2 Timothy, 
As Paul passes the baton, he gives Timothy some causes of spiritual defection or spiritual erosion. And as you can see on your outline, there are six of them as you work your way through First and Second Timothy. Cause number one on the list is found in First Timothy 6. And notice what Paul says in verse 6. He says this, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we have brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And he's going to go on to talk about this snare, this, this, this uh, detour that happens in the life of someone who is not content, who is fixated and focused on getting more, 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 more money in life. And so he begins by saying, godliness with contentment is great gain. You want to be rich? Well, that is really being rich. Godliness and contentment. For we brought nothing into this world. It's certain we can carry nothing out. Just a little quick survey. How many of you in this room have ever seen a funeral hearse pulling a U-Haul? Can I see your hand, please? No one. Funeral hearses don't pull U-Hauls because you can't take it with you. I remember hearing a story one time about a, a, a conference speaker who was going. He would fly around to different cities and speak. And he went to this one city and he arrived, but his luggage didn't. And so he thought, well, you know, I don't want to go buy a suit. He, he was going to be speaking in a suit. I don't want to go buy a suit for one occasion. It's just so expensive. So where can I get an inexpensive suit? And he thought, you know, a lot of times funeral homes bury people in suits, so maybe I can go down and get one from the funeral home. And he did. He went to a local funeral home, and he, he, he picked up a suit, and he took it back to his hotel room, and so he's getting dressed for the event, for the speaking occasion, and he went to put his keys and wallet and all of his things in the pockets, but there were no pockets anywhere on the suit, in the coat or the pants. And he said, this truth really hit home. Why does a dead man need pockets? You can't take it with you. And that's what Paul says here. We brought nothing into this world. We aren't going to take anything out. And he says, therefore, verse 8, having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who, now notice, he's addressing this to believers. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful desires which drown men in destruction and perdition. Wow. That's strong language to use of a believer. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which, now watch this, some have strayed from the faith. That's what we're talking about this afternoon. What can cause you to stray from the faith? For, he says, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. He's not saying there, get it or, or earn it. He, Timothy already had it. He's saying, grab hold of it. In the sense of, don't let go of it. Really latch on so that you stay consistent, so you don't get detoured. Lay hold on an eternal life to which you were called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless. Now notice Paul's heart here. 
He wants Timothy to endure blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. Implication, Timothy, if you don't do this, you won't be blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. So number one on our list, Paul says a love for or longing for money can cause defection. Jesus had so much to say about our attitude toward money. In fact, he had as much to say about money as he did any other subject he addressed. Why? Because our attitude toward money is a thermometer that measures the spiritual temperature of our hearts. You remember the story of the rich young ruler. It was alluded to already earlier this morning. Scott, in his message, mentioned the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus for eternal life And you remember, he says, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. You know, keep the commandments. Now, people get a little confused at that point. Was Jesus saying you can earn your salvation by obedience? No, Jesus was trying to get this man to understand he was a sinner and that he was a lawbreaker, the law of God. But the man in his pride says, well, I've kept all those from my youth. In other words, I'm good to go. So since that didn't work, since the man wouldn't expose his heart, In that way, by admitting that he was a sinner who violated the law of God, Jesus came at it from a different angle. He said, okay, one thing you lack. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And the gospel writers tell us, the three synoptic, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that this man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Think about it. Think about the the grievous nature of that interaction. Think about this. This man came to Jesus for eternal life. He came to the right place, the right person, and he left without it. It's unthinkable. He left without it. Why did Jesus ask that man to give up all of his money? Is that necessary to be a Christian? Can you show me any other passages in the Bible that say, you want to become a Christian, sell everything you have, and you can have eternal life? There aren't any. So why did Jesus ask the man to give up his money? Is that necessary to be a Christian? Is that necessary to walk with God? Absolutely not. But we must be willing to give up anything and everything. So Jesus went after the man's money because his attitude toward money displayed the true condition of his heart. Look here at verse 10, what Paul says. Please notice, he doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. That is most often how this verse is quoted. That is a misquote of it. It says the love of money. You can get sidetracked from the Christian life without having a dime. The warning here is that a love for or longing for money can cause you to wander. Young people, if you are driven by a love for money, if you are consumed with a love for money, you're on the road to defection. As Paul says here in this text, one of the greatest virtues in life is contentment. That is so extremely rare in our materialistic age. I once heard the story of a king who had everything, but he wasn't content, and he knew he wasn't content, so he sent his servants throughout his kingdom to scour all the ends of his kingdom to find one content man. And he instructed them that once they found him to bring back the man's shirt, thinking that wearing the shirt would somehow bring contentment. After many, many days, the servants returned, and they said to the king, we found only one content man in all of your kingdom. To which the king replied, well, you found one. Give me his shirt, 
And you know what the servants replied. He doesn't own one. If you're driven by a love for money, mark it well, you're on the road to defection. Cause number two in our list is found in this same chapter. Skip down chapter 6, verse 20. 1 Timothy 6, verse 20. Oh, Timothy. Notice the emotion in Paul's writing there. I mean, this, this was on his heart. This was something so dear to him. Oh, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle or empty babblings and contradiction of what is falsely called knowledge. And now notice this. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. That's what we're talking about. Straying from the faith. Straying from your walk with God. And Paul says here, number two on our list, buying into wrong thinking, buying into humanistic thinking is a major cause of spiritual defection. A non-discerning acceptance of humanistic views of life destroys faith. Now, there are two main avenues that this kind of thinking comes to us through. Two main avenues the world's thinking comes to us through. One is media. And when I say media, that's a huge umbrella. Television, radio, books, movies, magazines, internet, you you know, all of that. All of that. Humanistic views of life are continually pumped through the media and watch it, young people. The message is always the same. Listen to, with, listen to it with discernment if you want to analyze it. Here's the message. Fulfillment in life. Fulfillment in life is outside of the parameters God has established. It's the same lie that Satan used all the way back in the beginning when he basically told Eve, has God said you shouldn't eat of that fruit? You know what? He's, he's trying to deprive you. He's holding, holding back on you. He doesn't want you to be happy. He's a cosmic killjoy. You know better how to be happy than God knows. You do it your way, not his way. This is what the media tells children, teenagers, college students, mothers, dads, husbands, wives. And listen to me, young people. This is not an, this is not an overstatement. This is not an exaggeration. You are living in the time of history. You are living in the time of history when it is most difficult as a Christian to guard your mind. There's absolutely no doubt about that because there are more avenues into your mind today than there have ever been. I mean, you know, I'm not that old, but I remember the days when there was no such thing as internet. There was no such thing as DVDs. You know, I, I, when I was in high school and I gave my life to Christ, I wanted to listen to the Bible and I had to buy cassette tapes some of you don't even know what they look like. That's what I, but now there's just uh, multitudes of inroads into your mind. So that's one avenue. The second avenue into your mind, into what Paul calls here false knowledge, is education. Might surprise you to hear that. I spent two years in a university in Florida. And uh, I only needed two years to finish the degree I was working on, so I, I just got an associate's degree in uh, social and natural sciences. So during those two years, I took all my classes were in like anthropology and earth science and uh, uh, psychology, uh, physical, natural sciences, and I was, I was stunned 
at how the students just drank in what was being taught without any discernment. I have seen believers get, I've, I've seen believers devastated spiritually just by getting an education. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying all, educa- all education is bad, it's wrong, but when it contradicts Scripture, when it undermines Scripture, it's wrong. It's dangerous. True science, by the way, cannot contradict the Word of God because God is the author of science. He is the author of Scripture. In fact, it is fascinating to note that the Bible speaks accurately and authoritatively on these topics. The first and second laws of thermodynamics, hydrology, astronomy, geology, isostasy, geodesy, meteorology, physiology, and history. Don't let anyone tell you the Bible isn't accurate or has contradictions or it has errors. During the first coming of Jesus Christ, there were 322 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled by him. That's just at the first coming. One man figured the odds of that happening by pure chance, and the fraction is 1 over 84 followed by 97 zeros. It didn't happen by chance. And then much of modern psychology comes along and says, you're not sinful, you can't help it. Your problem is that your mom wouldn't let you saw the leg off the dining room table and she suppressed you. That's your problem. Or science comes along and says, the earth is 89 trillion years old and your farthest removed ancestor is a single-celled it. Young people, don't buy into the humanistic, godless thinking that comes through our media and through the educational system. The Holy Spirit through Paul warns that it will neutralize your faith. Or as he says there in verse 21, it will cause you to stray from the faith. Cause number three in the list is over in 2 Timothy. So let's turn from 1 Timothy to 2 Timothy. Verse 1 of chapter 2, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then he says in verse 3, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So number three on the list I've titled hardship. Paul told Timothy, you must endure hardship. Hardship often causes people to defect spiritually. And what I mean by hardship is, and you, this is a big list. I mean, there are so many things that would fit in this category. It would be the loss of a child, the loss of a job, loss of health, loss of a spouse. Uh, any, it's, hardship is God allowing something to happen in your life that you don't think he should have allowed. Or, to turn it around the other way, hardship is God not giving us our desires and our prayer requests. I know of a dear lady who lost a loved one. It devastated her so much that she was within a fraction of totally turning away from the Lord for life. Thankfully, by God's grace, today she's strongly committed to the Lord and is an example to others, but it doesn't always happen that way. Oftentimes, people are so hurt by hardship, so disappointed by hardship, that rather than turning to the Lord, they turn from the Lord. Don't harden your heart when hardship hits. Job expressed the right attitude when in Job 13, 15, he said, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. 
In other words, God, I don't know why you are allowing this to happen to me, but even if it goes so far as killing me, I will trust that you know what you are doing. In John 17, when Jesus faced the most difficult hardship of his life, he affirmed the fact that God doesn't make mistakes by addressing God this way, O righteous Father. By the way, that's a good way to pray. Do you ever address God that way when you pray? I would encourage you to. Maybe not all the time. But make it a regular practice when you open your prayers instead of just saying, Heavenly Father or Dear God, say, O righteous Father. Father, it will drill into your mind the right idea that God is righteous. In his book, For Those Who Hurt, Charles Swindoll says, we cannot prepare for a crisis after the crisis occurs. Preparation must take place before we are nose to nose with the issue. So young people, start preparing. Job 6.14 says, For the despairing man there should be kindness from his friend, lest he forsake the fear of the Almighty. That's what we're talking about. If you know of someone experiencing hardship, then try to support, rally around that person, encourage and show kindness to him or her. And you may be a tool of the Lord to keep him or her from defecting. Cause number four on our list is also here in chapter two. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, Paul says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort. Watch this. Here's what we're talking about. Who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. So number four is this. A lack of diligence in the word will always lead to spiritual defection. Uh, we, we all can, if we're honest, we, we, we will all admit that it's difficult to be disciplined to be in the word. We maybe get tired of it or too busy or, or whatever, and then erosion inevitably takes place. I remember very clearly the summer before I went away to college, one night I was out working on my car And I received a call from a guy who had been my best friend growing up. But then after in my sophomore year of high school when I gave my life to Christ, our friendship just grew apart only because he had no interest in hanging around a Jesus freak, you know, or whatever. So he called me and he said, Brian, I want you to know that I just committed my life to Christ and I'd love to get together. Well, you can't imagine how excited I was. This was my best friend growing up when I was like 9, 10, 11, 12, all these years. So for the next couple months, before I went away to school, we spent a lot of time together. And just before I left for Chicago from Florida, we were sitting in a restaurant one night after church. We were talking about the Christian life. And this friend of mine said, Brian, you know, I just, I just want to share something with you. I don't like to read the Bible. He said, no, no, it's not that I don't like the Bible. I love God's Word. I love to hear it taught. and It's just that I've never been a reader. In school, I wasn't taught that well, so I'm not a very good reader. I just don't like to read anything. So I don't like to read the Bible. As you can guess, that raised a red flag in my mind, and I, I challenged my friend to, to find some way to get God's Word into his heart and mind, to discipline himself, to, get, to, to read his Bible, even though he didn't like reading. Well, I went away to school, and when I came back the next summer, my friend had digressed so far 
that you would never know he had, had made any kind of commitment to follow the Lord. He was on drugs, living with some gal, and his conscience was impenetrable. Ask God to give you a hunger for his word. Ask God to help you discipline yourself to take in the word. If you don't, your Christian life will erode, I guarantee it. Cause number five on our list is over in chapter four. Turn over to chapter four of 2 Timothy, and notice what he says in verse two. He says to Timothy, preach the word, Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound teaching, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So cause number five on our list is this. Rejecting the truth or not wanting the truth because it confronts us or makes us feel uncomfortable. That is a sure path to spiritual defection. I mean, let's, let's admit it. None of us like to be told that we're wrong. None of us. We don't like to be told we're wrong in our thinking, in our living, our actions, whatever. So our natural tendency is to reject any truth that makes us uncomfortable. But every time we reject the truth of Scripture, it gets easier the next time because our conscience is more dull. Hebrews 4 illustrates what our attitude ought to be to the Word of God. Listen to these words. I'll just read them to you from Hebrews 4. They're familiar verses to some of you, I know. Verse 12 says, The Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Verse 12 is quoted a lot, but we don't often quote verse 13. And it's talking about what, how God wants us to be open to his critique and his evaluation. That phrase, naked and open, there in verse 13, really interesting phrase. It was used to refer to what a soldier would do to a criminal who was standing before a, an authority in the military. Since it is the tendency of a guilty man to bow his head and not look into the eyes of the one he's giving an account to, the soldier standing by would stick the sharp tip of his dagger under the chin of the man and make him lift his head to look the, 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 the general or whoever it was in the eye. And the writer of Hebrews says that's what God's word ought to do to us, to make us face it, not to run from it because we're uncomfortable. If we refuse because we don't like it, we're, continue the analogy, we're cutting our own throats spiritually. And then finally, cause number six in the list is down in verse nine. Paul says as he winds down this letter, be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. So this is cause number six on our list. A love for this present world causes spiritual erosion or defection. Now this world has a lot to offer. This world offers position, popularity, power, prestige, pleasure. And if you buy into those things, you're on the road to defection. 
It's interesting to note that as Paul closed out his letter to Philemon years earlier, he referred to Demas, now catch this, as his fellow worker, his fellow laborer. He says in Philemon, Demas, my fellow laborer greets you. So when Paul wrote Philemon, Demas was a fellow laborer, a worker in ministry, a worker in the gospel. But somewhere along the line, Demas fell in love with the world and he defected. 1 John 2 gives us the cure for worldliness. Turn over to the right near the end of the New Testament to 1 John chapter 2. Because here, John addresses the same thing that Paul spoke to Timothy about there in 2 Timothy, 2, or 2 Timothy 4. John says this in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's such a critical statement. Because if you just stop with verse 15, don't love the world or the things of the world, if that's where you stop and you don't read the rest, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, your approach to to this issue will be, okay, I, I I gotta not love the world, don't love the world, don't love the world. It's sort of like just, if I were to say to you right now, don't think about a pink elephant. Now what are all of you thinking about? A pink elephant. That, that, that approach doesn't work. So you can't just say, don't love the world, don't love the world. Don't lo-. You've got to look at the next phrase. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John tells us that the problem with us if we love the world is that we don't love the Father the way we should. So the cure for worldliness is to cultivate your love for the Father. The cure for worldliness is not external, it's It's internal. You can't attack worldliness by chopping off the branches. You're only dealing with the fruit and not the root. That's why a legalistic approach to the Christian life doesn't really work. If your whole Christian life is don't, 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 that doesn't work. You're not really getting to the root or the heart. Let me illustrate it this way. If you leave this conference today and you're going down the street in your vehicle and all of a sudden the oil light comes on on your dash, it comes on, let me tell you what you do about that. Just reach under your seat and grab, hopefully you have one of these under your seat, grab a little ball-peen hammer out and then knock the oil light on on your dash. Just hit it. Is that what you do? Does that solve your problem? Not at all. Instead, you put oil in your crankcase and that takes care of the problem. The light will go out. Well, the same thing John is telling us here, the same thing is true with the problem of loving the world. If you will cultivate your love for the Father, By getting to know him, that will take care of the problem of worldliness. Worldliness is the symptom of the problem. Love for God is the cure. So, what does Paul warn Timothy about in his own life? Things that could cause him to defect? Love of money, humanistic thinking, hardship, lack of diligence in the word, rejection of truth that makes us uncomfortable, and love for this present world. Those are all specific causes of defection. Now catch this, in the life of a believer. Potential in the life of a believer. So what gives us long-term endurance? That's what the title of this message is, Running with Endurance. What grants that? If these are the the hurdles or if these are the cautions that we need to to be aware of, what gives long-term endurance? Well, as we close, turn back to the left a little bit to Hebrews chapter 12. 
Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 1, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now I know I'm repeating myself, but I'll say it again. The clear implication of that is that it's possible for us to not run with endurance. And he's not saying, well, if you don't run with endurance, you're automatically a non-Christian. The writer of Hebrews is saying, don't be ensnared. Get rid of the weights and run with endurance. Well, how do you do that? Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The word race, by the way, in verse 1, run with endurance, the race that before us. It's the Greek word agona, from which we get our English word agony. You know what that tells us? It tells us the Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's not a 100-meter dash. So many start well, but then they, they get sidetracked, just as Paul warned Timothy about. So again, I ask you, as I asked you at the beginning of this message, will you be walking with God this time next year? What about five years from now? What if we had an advanced reunion five years from now? Everyone who's in this room could somehow make it happen to get back together. If experience has shown me anything, it would be sad. It would be a sad reunion. Because there would be plenty. There would be a number who have defected, who've bailed out. Remember, the odds are against us. Jesus, in his parable, talked about 75% not doing well. So what gives endurance? Let me tell you. Not a program, not a method, not a group, not a church. As Scott mentioned earlier, not accountability on a human level exclusively. Not saying there's no place for that. But what gives endurance? I'll tell you what gives endurance. One thing, a person. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus. If you will keep your focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be able to run with endurance. Let's pray as we close. Father, as we think about this sober and serious topic uh, of spiritual defection or spiritual erosion, we, we see the... the the issue all around us. We all, probably every one of us in this room, have Christian friends or family members who, who at one point were really doing well spiritually, but today they're, just, they're either just so into money or so into the world or they've bought into humanistic thinking and their, their lives are just a spiritual washout, which is a tragedy. Surely every one of us in this room knows someone like that, probably knows several someones like that. And we recognize the potential for us, that the potential for any one of us to walk down that same path. So how we pray, how we long for the grace and the strength to do as the writer of Hebrews says, fixing our eyes upon Jesus. May we not expect to get endurance from a group or a program, but only from a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, an ever-deepening relationship, an ever-growing stronger relationship 
This is our prayer together in his precious and powerful name. Amen.